Well, he raised up a son that could eat up his weight in groceries. Named him after a man of the cloth. Called him Amos Moses. Sit down on him, Amos. Make it count, son. All right, we are back. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes, I think, and let's talk about the passing of some notables. Uh, I've been sitting on this one from The Economist from March. The, uh, the obituary of Lazare Ponticelli. He was, in fact, the last French foot soldier of the First World War. We talked about uh, how we're losing so many World War II vets. And we also mentioned a while back that there's only one U.S. veteran of World War I, Frank Buckles, now 106, of West Virginia. He's the last of two million uh, uh, doughboys that were sent uh, to fight in Europe in World War I. Mr. Ponticelli uh, was Italian but fought for the French. That'd be worth quoting a bit from the Economist obituary. The article noted that it was much grief in France over his, uh, over his passing because during the war, uh, during times of bad shelling, it noted that the, the soldiers would reassure each other by saying, if I die, you'll remember me, won't you? Mr. Ponticelli felt he had a duty to try, and when he finally passed away at 110, he was the last of the people who could have remembered some of those individuals. Noted that as he got, uh, got older, uh, people wanted to talk to him about World War I. Article said he always courteously obliged them. It was as important to him as it was to them to underscore the horror and futility of it all. More than anything, he was appalled that he'd been made to fire on people he didn't know, and to whom he too was a stranger. These were the fathers of children. He had no quarrel with them. His Italian Alpine regiment had once stopped firing for three days on the Austrians uh, because, well, many of them spoke the same language. They, they wound up swapping loaves of bread for tobacco and taking pictures of each other. To the end of his life, Mr. Ponticelli showed no interest in labeling anyone his enemy. He said he did not understand why on earth he or they had been fighting. One note, the passing of a Hamilton Jordan, advisor to Jimmy Carter, was noted in an obituary that in 1972, the Georgia governor met with his top aides to discuss his career options. At the time, he was two years into his tenure, but was barred by term limits from seeking re-election. His, his executive secretary, Hamilton Jordan, was prepared. He handed Carter a 70-page master plan and declared, we've come to tell you what you're going to do about your future. Jordan went on to successfully guide his boss to the White House and at age 34 became its youngest ever chief of staff. I find that quite interesting that Jordan actually helped uh, negotiate uh, Carter into the White House and that later uh, he co-chaired Ross Perot's 1992 presidential candidacy which uh, helped uh, show uh, George Bush 41 the door. Jordan played a role in many initiatives of the Carter administration including the transfer of the Panama Canal which I think was later put in limbo by... Uh, uh, George Bush 41's invasion, uh, also the Camp David peace talks, which were, which were successful. He was notable for generating quite a few tabloid headlines along the way. He reportedly sniffed cocaine at Studio 54, uh, reportedly spit his drink down the front of Owen's blouse at a singles bar in Georgetown, and uh, was caught ogling the cleavage of the Egyptian ambassador's wife, saying he was seeking the twin pyramids of the Nile. But uh, at no point did he lose uh, Jimmy Carter's confidence. Interesting fellow, Hamilton Jordan, uh, dead at 63. 
And a giant from another realm uh, passed away last week. That would be the fashion giant Yves Saint Laurent, who died at 71. He was considered among the 20th century's most innovative and forward-looking fashion designers. His obituary noted that he made pantsuits part of the standard female wardrobe. He also dressed to women in such male togs as peacoats and safari jackets. Yves Saint Laurent introduced the female tuxedo, but also popularized bohemian chic. It was noted that he had a difficult childhood being uh, raised in Algeria. At school, he was beaten up by other boys for his obvious homosexual leanings. He found solace in a land populated by elaborate cut-out paper dolls. By 13, he was designing dresses for his mother and sister. At 17, he placed first in the International Wool Secretariat competition with a cocktail dress that featured one bared shoulder. Christian Dior hired him in 1954 in Paris, anointing him as my dauphin, my right arm. When his mentor died suddenly in 1957, the house of Dior put Saint Laurent in charge. At 21, he found himself the head of a $20 million a year fashion empire. It was noted that designers copied Saint Laurent's best ideas as fast as he produced them. His heyday uh, were the, uh, the 60s and 70s, but he did have successes later, uh, notably his 1977 perfume, Opium. In 1991, Saint Laurent sold his brand to Gucci for almost $1 billion. That's with a B. A lot of money in fashions. And speaking of European artists, we hope that you caught uh, the HBO special titled Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. This is a truly interesting uh, documentary film, which, uh, which documented the story of how Roman Polanski and his statutory rape case uh, got all balled up. The uh, very, very interesting film contains interviews with lawyers, police, journalists, and the thir- then 13-year-old victim of, uh, of Polanski, and that's kind of victim in quotes. But uh, it was noted that although Polanski was guilty of having sex with a minor, he himself was also a victim. Or as he said at the time, I was some kind of mouse played with by an abominable cat. It's quite clear that in the case, the judge wanted to make a name for himself and committed did things that were just, just out and out illegal to say nothing of wrong. Anyway, that one would be well worth your time to check out. All right, let's close with a few miscellaneous political items. Uh, Bob Barr, the, uh, the Georgia Republican that uh, led the charge against uh, Bill Clinton, has now somehow managed to capture the Libertarian Party's nomination for president. You know, Ron Paul is a genuine Libertarian, and it's really weird that he's uh, going to have his own convention here uh, because there's still a lot of people that would like to see Ron Paul get the nomination, which, of course, is now uh, mathematically impossible. But uh, I, I want to say that if there's one thing the two parties can agree upon in this country is that there needs to be no third party to come uh, to come to spoil things. I think like uh, Pat Buchanan's effort in 2000 to grab the, the Reform Party nomination and make them disappear, uh, Bob Barr is going to do his best to sink the libertarian efforts here in 08. As we talked about on this show before, of course, uh, adding a third party to the mix changes everything. And of course, you have to Look no further back than Ralph Nader's effort in the year 2000 to contemplate uh, how you can change things. Remember, of course, uh, the Republicans spent a lot of money to run Ralph Nader ads in New Hampshire, which George Bush squeaked past Al Gore by 7,000 votes. 
Nader got 22,000. If Ralph Nader had not siphoned off all those Al Gore votes in New Hampshire, Al Gore would have been elected in 2000 no matter what Jeb Bush pulled down in the state of Florida. And finally, uh, in the wake of, of, of Tom McClintock defeating Doug Osey, I must confess to a pang of guilt over bagging Doug Osey on this program. Uh, because uh, the Sacramento Bee published a list of uh, examples of votes or legislation by Doug Osey that Tom McClintock says shows he's a liberal. Among Osey's heinous acts, he opposed cutting U.S. funding for the U.N. He also wrote legislation to elevate the EPA to cabinet-level status. Worse yet, he supported prohibition on oil and gas production off the California coast. If that wasn't bad enough, he sponsored the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution while he was also opposing the prohibition by the FDA of a chemical to induce abortion while co-sponsoring embryonic stem cell research. So after listening to Tom McClintock, I'm thinking, God, Osi wasn't such a bad guy. But then matters are set right by Doug Osi's self-defense pointing out the fact that he's a conservative because, well, he co-sponsored the constitutional amendment prohibiting desecration of the flag. He supported school prayer and the constitutionality of under God and the Pledge of Allegiance. And he led investigation into gifts received by President Clinton at the end of his term and wrote legislation to toughen controls. So I guess in the end, uh, I don't feel so bad. But I would like to close with the fact that, you know, I, I didn't realize that Doug Osi had done some of those good things. And to that we say, well, uh, well done, Mr. Ozzy. That does it for the show. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This show, like all of them, have been produced by Mr. Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>